good life? And what's a good person? And there's actually a popular beer commercial that tells about this guy who apparently seems to be living the good life. Well, I want to present to you a video about another man who is probably more interesting than that other man that I was speaking about in the ad. So we start off with a little bit of humor there, but that God-man, that man, Jesus, came 2,000 years ago, and he made such an impact into the world and in the, in the community that even 2,000 years later, that he still has an impact and influence in our world today. There are millions, literally millions of people who, who follow him and are dedicated to do his commands. He came into the world to bring great hope, a new perspective on world order, but he also came with warnings to those who are usually in power, those who make the institutions that, that we live by. He was a man who came with great influence, and our series that we're currently in, and we're going to be in for the next few couple months, is called The Most Interesting Man. And it's based on a book that uh, Pastor Andrew and I are reading. It's a book by John Ortberg, who's a pastor just down, the, down across the bay. He wrote this book called, Who is This Man? In a particular chapter in his book, he deals with this question, good life versus a good person. So what do you think does it mean to be a good person? Just take a moment and think about that. And actually kind of maybe turn to your neighbor right now and just share a couple thoughts that come to mind. What does it mean to be a good person or even to have a good life? So I hope you have some good answers there. And, ho- and, if, and if you didn't cheat, you didn't look at my notes. Maybe you didn't get any answers from there either. So how many of you are on Facebook? This social media thing, right? There's also Instagram, and now I hear there's this thing called Snapchat, right? So technology moves on, for better or worse. Uh, social media, uh, Facebook. I got into it maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago. It's because of this guy right here in front of me. <laughs> Told me, I asked him what it was about, and he said, well, you got to try it. can't explain it to you. So, Facebook. It's a wonderful tool. It's a great tool to build community, have relationships uh, outside of just physically meeting with people, to get to know and learn about people. But how do you know what you're seeing is actually real or authentic? And if some of you who, who are my Facebook friends, if you look at my, my uploads and postings for the last few days, you think I've been eating a lot of steak and a lot of salmon, right? So it, it, all I could be doing is just posting pictures. So how do you know they're actually food that I eat? you look at all the pictures of my food that I post, I would be like 300 pounds. <laughs> so how do we know what we see on those pages that are real? But if you looked at that, I could be giving the impression, because I know a lot of you say, wow, Calvin, you must be living the good life. Or when I'm vacationing, you said, are you retired? <laughs> you don't seem to be working. But social media can give a certain impression of who we are, And sometimes we have to just kind of remember or try to reflect, is that really who we want to be 
betraying ourselves as? Well, this is a question that, that I said theologians and philosophers have been wrestling with. What is the good life? And Jesus tells us in Matthew, in Matthew 5 what it means to be a good, have a good life. If you have your Bibles, I want us to, to turn to Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11. I'm going to be using the New Living Translation for this morning. It's a little bit more straightforward, a little bit easier to understand. God blesses those who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are gentle and lonely, for the whole earth will belong to them. God blesses those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, for they will receive it in full. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when you are mocked and persecuted and lied about because you are my followers. Those scripture verses come out of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' first message to all the people that that came to listen to him. It was a really important start to his ministry. Right there, his first words, he begins to tell the world what kind of people he wanted as his followers. Essentially, he was saying, blessed are those who are, etc., etc. In Jesus' time, the word blessed means the good life. Good life means you are blessed. And a lot of the time in, in our human understanding, a good life means we have a lot of money. We have a lot of status. We have a lot of power. That's a common understanding of what having a blessed life. And so even the religious people back then were thinking that if you were blessed by God, you would have money, you would have power, and you would have status. And it's kind of interesting that today a lot of us still feel that way, that a good life means you have a lot of money, you have a lot of status, and you have a lot of power. And I'm not saying those things don't necessarily can be part of having a good life. But Jesus was saying from what he thinks a good life is, is that sometimes the things that we think that make up a good life, like power, money, and status, they're not available to everybody. Terry and I, we, we, uh, we sponsor children through Compassion International. And there's a girl in Rwanda that we kind of support. In the you know, greatest expanses of my imagination, there is no way that girl will ever experience the education or the wealth or the status that we have here in America. I mean, that's pretty much going to be realistic that she won't ever experience that. But does that mean she can't have a good life? That would be pretty sad if that was the equation to getting a good life. And that's where Jesus came with his hope by his description in the Beatitudes, which is known as those blessings. What a good life is supposed to be about has nothing to do with status, power, and money. Jesus came to to level the playing field 
so that all of us will have an opportunity to have a good life if we choose to. So how do we get it? What does it look like? And that's what he explained there in those verses, in those Beatitudes. And in there, he says, for the first one, it is to be dependent on God. To have a blessed life is first to be dependent on God. And that requires a lot of humility. Essentially saying, I can't do it on my own terms, on my own resources. The second thing he says is to those who mourn. To mourn means to, is to have sadness, to have grief. It's not to have this expectation that life is supposed to be happy all the time. To be able to mourn is to be able to cry, to be able to weep. It shows compassion and empathy for others. The next thing he says is that those who are blessed are gentle and meek. Gentleness doesn't mean being powerless or weak. It just means you are restraining your power that you do have. It is meaning having self-control and being able to defer to others. And it's a key to having a life of submission. He then says, it is those who seek righteousness, or essentially justice. That means looking and doing what is right, even especially if there's a personal cost to it, to achieving that kind of justice for others. Then he says, we are to be merciful. Those who are blessed, those who are living a good life are people who are merciful. That means it's not taking revenge on others. It's ability to turn the other cheek. He then says, those who are blessed are those who are pure in heart. And I think that's pretty much summarizes everything that God cares for. He doesn't care about the externals, but God knows our heart. People can see our externals, but nobody can truly see our hearts except God. And here, Jesus says, the people who live blessed lives have pure hearts, meaning they're honest, they're authentic, they're not deceptive. The next characteristic of being a blessed person is being a peacemaker. It's about seeking reconciliation. And finally, he says that a blessed life means persecution. Persecution for following the example of Jesus. It means that if you're truly committed, not lukewarm, not superficial, if you're truly committed to Jesus and doing Jesus' uh, uh, commands and instructions, then expect you're going to get a lot of flack. Life is not going to be so good in the worldly sense. In some ways, there is going to be trials and tribulations because of the one you follow and dedicate your life to. So if you look at this list, this list that, that Jesus started, his greatest sermon, the first one of his ministry, known as the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to tell us that the blessed life, the good life, has nothing to do with money, status, or power has nothing to do with external circumstances, but it deals with internal attributes. And matter of fact, and this is the hope that we have, obviously we can't do any of this on ourselves. All of these attributes are personified by Jesus Christ himself. And it is through him 
that we are able to have these attributes credited to us. If we follow his example, who is the picture of perfection of what it means to have a good life, then we have a better idea of what it is to have a good life. And we obviously can't do it ourselves. We can only do it with the help of Jesus. So that's challenging. Probably it's a different kind of perspective. But my hope is that looking at that from this morning and the days to follow, look at your own life. What is your thoughts about having a good life? And does it kind of rub up against what Jesus is saying now from the Beatitudes, what a good life is? And then the next step is, it's more important not just to think about it. It's obviously more important that we actually live it, to try to be people who go after mercy, justice, and compassion. Being a person who has a good life is something that we often, a lot of us strive for. We spend a lot of time and energy and money looking for those things. But at the end of our lives, you know, often at funerals, we don't talk about our good lives. We don't want to tell the stories that we uh, worked hard, played hard, spent a lot of money, made a lot of money. Those stories usually don't come out at funerals. When you die, a lot of people want to be known as a good person, right? If you read people's obituaries, they don't tell you how many cars they have, how many homes they own. They talk about being a good father, good mother, a good worker, a good Christian. Everybody wants to be known as being good. And that's, that's something that a lot of us try to strive for, right? Either you strive for a good life or you want to strive to be a good person. You know, admirable and noble things to do. But we have to kind of realize or understand what we're trying to achieve and if it's possible on our own. That question, what is a good person? I kind of pose that question to you. Do you know what a good person is? And actually in the story of the rich young ruler, which is, or rich young man, it's a story that's spread in th- and told in three, of the go- uh, three out of the four Gospels. That young man asked Jesus, what one good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him by saying, there is no one good. There is only one thing that is good, and that is God. Nothing compares Everything falls short. So it's almost like a trick question. When I ask you, what is a good person? Actually, the answer is, nobody's a good person. Only God is good, and he's good all the time. And it is only through that gift that God gives us, through Jesus Christ, that we can be attributed to being good. It's that what he did on the cross allows us to be substituted from the judgment that was meant for us. And through his perfection, we are given that righteousness, that goodness through Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that Jesus said when he came as a God-man. He gave that as the hope to the world. You don't have to do that on your own. I've did it, done it already for you on the cross. 
But we're dumb people. We're foolish people. Because we think we can still do it on our own. And actually, a lot of times when you've been in church for a long time, we are guilty of trying to do this too much on our own. We want to look good on the outside. We want to be godly people, clean, squeaky clean. But really, we are actually sinful and dirty on the inside. We are deceptively feigning beliefs or virtues that in actuality we don't even believe or live out. And Jesus had a hard word for this. He called this hypocrisy. And this was something that Jesus hated to the deepest of his core. Because Jesus came with a message that was supposed to transform the world. It was a message that was supposed to bring millions of people back to restoration. And the one thing that he hated was hypocrisy. Because that will kill a movement. It is to live out some things just to look good and then not actually believe it. When outsiders see that, people who are seeking, uh, seeking truth and see deception like that, it kills a movement. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he was very harsh. A lot of his harsh corrections and rebukes in, in the Gospels is against a, a group of people who thought they could be good people on their own. And they were called the Pharisees. When I was uh, unchurched, uh, I remember one of the hurdles for myself uh, and barriers of coming uh, into the faith was when I was looking at people who called themselves Christians. A lot of them were my, my peers. And I looked at their lifestyle and the things that they were doing. I was saying, Boy, if this is what it meant to be a Christian, if you were living out ways that don't, don't like anything that I see in the Bible, that tells me this is a really a meaningless faith. It has no power to change people. If you can just live like that uh, in sinful ways, why should I change? Because I can live the same way and because your faith don't really matter. And so that was kind of uh, my my journey were hypocrisy that I saw in the church and the ones that professed that they followed Jesus, that really kept me for the longest time from, from uh, becoming a Christian myself. Um, it was until God actually met me personally and my kind of road to Damascus kind of experience that I uh, humbled myself and knew that Jesus was my Lord and, and Savior. But hypocrisy is something that that we, as those who profess to follow Jesus, we need to guard ourselves against that, to examine ourselves and make sure we're not falling into the trap of, of allowing others to see us in ways that are not truly reflective of Jesus Christ. In a book that many of us have read, it's called Unchristian. It does a survey about from uh, young people from the ages of 18 to about 30. We call them the millennials, I guess. Uh, apparently, 85% of unchurched millennials believe that the, there is hypocrisy in the church. 85% of them. 
And then if you look at the churched millennials, those who are professed to be Christians, it's not even any better. 47% of them say that, that Christians are hypocrites. That's almost half. That's pretty sad that the unchurched world thinks Christians are hypocrites at almost 85%. And then in the church, 50% of, of, of young folks believe that Christians are hypocrites. And the scary part is they don't care. That it, if you're a hypocrite, go ahead, be a hypocrite. It doesn't matter. But for Jesus, it did matter because that's a good way of killing a faith movement. In Jesus' time, Pharisees thought they were good people. At least they thought they were better, <clears throat> better than other people. So that's my question for us this morning. For those of you who, who come to church, maybe it's your first time, maybe it's your hundredth time. The question is, do you feel you are a Pharisee? Because I will make a case that we who come to church for a long time, we fall into the danger of becoming Pharisees. In, back in uh, Jesus' time, you know, Pharisees was not actually a negative thing. They were actually considered by culture and society as very spiritual people. They were very influential, very knowledgeable. They were, as best they could, trying to be good people. But slowly, some of them, maybe a lot of them, got caught up in that status of being spiritual people because it meant in the Jewish community a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of money, a big status. And naturally, as men and women, we often get caught up in those kind of things. Our pride, our ego begins to grow and grow, and sometimes it pushes God away. And for the Pharisees, they were beginning to do a lot of things because they liked the power, the status, and the money. And it wasn't because they were doing it for God. And today, when we call people Pharisees, when we teach and we look at the scripture, we have a different picture. We don't see the Pharisees as good people, as honorable people, as people who are very spiritual. We look at them as enemies of the faith. You know, they're the bad guys. But a lot of times, we have to be careful in pointing the finger at them and not looking at the mirror and pointing at ourselves. Today, a modern kind of usage of Pharisee, what we, we would consider a Pharisee, is probably um, colored by these three attributes. And the first one is legalism. That's following the rules exactly as we've interpreted them, and only if you follow them as we have interpreted them, then you're saved. That's kind of legalism, a picture of what legalism is. The second characteristic of what maybe a modern Pharisee would be is, is what we're talking about, hypocrisy. And it's talking about we make up the rules, and we can break the rules because we know the loopholes to those rules. And that's a form of hypocrisy. And then uh, a third way that we could characterize modern Pharisees is by what we call elitism. It's meaning that I'm better than the next guy. That I am holier than the other person. 
I don't sin as bad as that guy. In Matthew 23, Jesus has a very hard word to the Pharisees. And it's my contention, my belief, those are warnings for us to, to be aware of. In many translations, the, these warnings come as, as woes. Woe to he. Woe to thee. I'm using a New Living Translation, and it's, it's translated as how terrible it will be for you. So woe has a, a double meaning. It means to that there's a, a pending judgment to come, but also it implies there's a sadness or grieving that this is the case. So there is this harshness that there is going to be a judgment, but there's also a kind of almost a compassionate sadness that this has to be. So that's encapsulated by the word woe, and in New Legion Translation, it's how terrible it will be for you. And I'm kind of going to go through these woes that Jesus mentioned in, in, in Matthew 23. There are seven of them. Now, if you're a Bible student, you know that seven is, in Hebrew, in the biblical times, is perfection, right? The number seven. There are seven days in creation, and here there are seven woes. So this gives a completeness to this concept of what it means to uh, have these warnings. Verse 13 from Matthew 23. How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you won't let others enter the kingdom of heaven and you won't go in yourselves. Right there, Jesus uses the word hypocrite. And it's actually kind of a new twist on the word hypocrite in the first century. Uh, Hypocrite in the Greek culture It comes from a word that's related to acting, to theater, that that actors are known as hypocrites in Greek Greek times. It's because the actors on stage, to play different characters, would put on masks. And so they would just change a mask as they were going to play a different character. So essentially they were called hypocrites because essentially what they saw on the external was not actually reflective of what's on the inside. But when Jesus started to use the word in Israel, in Jerusalem, around that time period, he was making the case here that it was more than just being an actor. It was actually something that was really negative and something he was criticizing the Pharisees or anybody like the Pharisees, that you are being deceptive and sinful when you're being um, a hypocrite. So there... Jesus calls them hypocrite, and he goes and does this in seven times throughout the scripture. When he says to these teachers, you won't let others enter the kingdom of heaven, and you won't go in yourselves, he's essentially warning the Pharisees that that you're making it so hard for people to become followers. You know, the Pharisees were well known of making up the rules all kinds of laws, all kinds of ways to, to, to act like a, like a good Jewish person. And sometimes those, those, those uh, requirements were so detailed and so harsh, it was really hard for people to become Jewish. And, and this was the same case that was happening in the Christian faith, that 
a lot of people were being held back because of all the requirements that other people were expecting them to do to become a Christian. It was so anti-evangelism. It wasn't about God because the more difficult you can make it into your faith, then it creates status and elitism for those who are supposedly in it. The more you can keep out, it makes you special. And Jesus came not to make that kind of faith movement. So that's our question. Are we really a welcoming church? Are we one that create too many barriers so people can't really join us? The second woe that Jesus comes up with in verse 15, he says, Yes, how terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn them into twice the son of hell as you yourselves are. You know, when you read these things, these are pretty hard things that Jesus is saying. And he does, he's leaving these hard words for so-called leaders of the, of the so-called uh, Jewish faith. And here he's warning that, you know, the, the Pharisees are actually converting people not to be followers of God. They're converting people to look like just like themselves. To mimic, to model exactly how they strive for money, status, and power. Versus what Jesus wants us to do is to encourage people for not to look good on the outside, but for internal for inner renewal. A third woe is from verse 16, blind guides, how terrible it will be for you, for you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, you can break that oath, but then you say that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. And you say that to take an oath by the altar can be broken, but to swear by the gifts on the altars is binding, etc., etc. It keeps on going. And it took me a while to figure this one out. And I don't know if you reading that can figure out what's going on about swearing oaths on the temple, swearing oaths on the gold on the, on the temple or on the altar. So apparently what Jesus is talking about here is, is that the, the Pharisees had all kinds of standards of oaths or commitments. If you... They, they said that you swear by something to make it serious. But it, what you swear it by makes it more serious if you swear by certain things. So the altar they're talking about is something that's close to God in the Jewish understanding in, in the temple. And then if you swear by the sanctuary, which is a, a little bit distance away, it didn't mean as much. And if you swear by the foyer of the sanctuary of the church, then you got a big leeway of breaking that oath. So they were being really technical as to what they were swearing by. And it was just kind of like a gamesmanship of how I could get out of the oath I was making. And Jesus was making a point here of saying, you know, this is ridiculous. If you swear an oath, your word should be binding. And that's a word to us, is that our word should be good. There shouldn't be any loopholes. Or small print. The fourth woe that Jesus talks about is how terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest part of your income, but you ignore the important things of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. 
You should tithe, yes, but you should not leave undone the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, then you swallow a camel. Again, here's a little bit of humor. We're all supposed to be, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> um, again, Jesus is working on this thing about the Pharisees. They're kind of so anal, so detail-oriented into the minutia. And we're talking about how often the Pharisees will strain whatever they drink. Whether it's wine or their drinking water, they will strain it with a piece of cloth to, so that bugs won't go into the drink. So, you know, bugs are found in the thing. They just pour it, and they would separate it. So they make sure there's no little, little bugs. Because gnats uh, in the Jewish faith was considered dirty, unclean. So they had this whole thing about staying holy was not to get dirtied by ingesting dirty things. So they're so into the details. They would, they would strain whatever they ate or drank so that they wouldn't get little bugs into their mouths. And here, Jesus says, you would do that to strain these little gnats, but you would eat a camel. That we f- you, you forget about the big thing. And the big thing here, the camel here, is mercy, justice, and faith. Those are the primary things that people should be concerned with, not how much you are giving to the church. You know, working out to the last percentage point of what you're supposed to be giving to. The more important thing is, how are we living out lives that, 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 that show that we care about mercy, justice, and faith. The fifth woe that uh, Jesus talks about here is found in verse 25. How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, filthy full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First wash the inside of the cup, and then the outside would become clean too. This is essentially keeping up appearances, you know, being, looking nice and clean on the outside, but actually being very corrupt in our private world. The sixth woe is, how terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. You try to look up, look like upright people outwardly, but inside your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is trying to be spiritual, and, and by doing so, covering up sin that's actually in us. And the final woe is how terrible it will be for you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and decorate the graves of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, we will never, uh, we never would have joined them in killing the prophets. In saying that, you are accusing yourselves of being the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead, finish what they started. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? This is a pretty harsh word that Jesus is closing with, the seven woes. He's talking about essentially the long line of prophets in Jewish history and how all of them were martyred by the people. And the Jewish Pharisees were saying that, no, we won't do that anymore. And they turn around, they do it again. And Jesus here, again, essentially is predicting that they're going to do the same thing to him. And that's called hypocrisy. And he uses very, you know, um, a very bad word in the Christian 
but not a Christian in the Jewish faith. He calls them snakes, vipers. The other thing that is known in the biblical times as being a snake and a viper is Satan himself. So for the Jewish people, this is one of the lowliest animals, creatures on the earth, and Jesus is calling them snakes. And he uses, again, the most harshest judgment there is, is that you will go to hell. You know, as a, as a pastor, you know, we, we teach about these things, we preach about these things, and we encourage you. I'm often very careful of using those, those kind of warnings or, or punishments where you say you're going to go to hell. Because, you know, that's not really loving. So I don't know if I can get away with it as much as Jesus is saying here in the Word. He's telling the leaders of the church, those who are most spiritual, he said, you are snakes, and be careful because your judgment will be hell. Well, what's the point here? Jesus is essentially telling us, you know, not to play at church, but be people of character who actually care about forgiveness, mercy, and about loving others in a real way. To care less about how we look on the outside. Instead, learn more about how our inside condition is, how our heart is. Because the only person we really need to please is God. And God can truly see our hearts. And one of the things that's hopeful for me and should be hopeful for you that Jesus has good news. That he came offering that kind of hope for us to have a good life and to be good people because it's not something that we can do on our own. He came, Jesus came, so that we could have a good life and to be good people. If we accept him as Lord and Savior, he takes care of it. He's done that on the cross. That his ransom that he pays with his life takes care of that for the past, the present, and the future. So my word to you is to If you're like me, stop being a Pharisee and with honesty and humility daily admit that you can't do it on your own, that we are broken, and that we need Jesus Christ. I struggle with hypocrisy. You know, this morning I started by saying, "Um, how are you? And I asked you to kind of think about that. And I think a lot of you are like me. Right? We reflexively often respond almost automatically when we're asked that question. I'm good. When a lot of times I could be hurting from a, from a relationship that I, I, that I uh, damaged. Or work is not going really well. Or I'm uh, uh, suffering over a bad habit that I continually do. And, and can't stop. But reflexively, I answer a question, oh, I'm good. But I'm thankful that, that Jesus gives me the hope that, that it's not about me, that I will continue to be a broken, bad person. And he gives me the solution that if I have faith in him and follow him, He takes care of that. 
It's all, in many ways, many of us walk around in, in this world with masks on our face. We're all kind of like hypocrites. We look good on the outside, but there are stuff on the inside we don't want anyone to see. But that's okay, because Jesus still loves us. He knows that. And it's often better that we can, in the safety of good community, often tell our stories of how we are really on the inside. Uh, a good friend of mine, a uh, pastor down at Evergreen, down south, Pastor Ken Fong, he talks about this concept about being recovering Pharisees. And so all of us would hope to be recovering Pharisees. And hey, I want to read a quote from him that talks about this. I am addicted to hypocrisy, arrogance, and spiritual conceit. But because Jesus is full of grace and truth, I have hope. Like an addict who has come to grips with his addictions, I now carry the identity of a recovering Pharisee. As such, I should be acutely aware of my Pharisaic proclivities, of my instinctive desire to think that I can add to my worth to Christ by being more moral than most. I need to wake up each morning feeling humbled and grateful, not boastful and judgmental. I need to avoid hanging out with Pharisees who are still deep in their addictions and in denial because they can easily bring me back to being too, too full of myself and less full of the Holy Spirit. And even if I'm clean and sober for a long time, I should not be surprised when I relapse because, guided by the love of Jesus, relapse is part of my recovery. For relapse humbles me further, making me more teachable. So can we honestly see how desperate we, we need, for, need Jesus? And it's only then that we will receive the healing that we need. So can we repent from our foolishness of trying to chase after the good life or being a good person on our own? And can we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ? I kind of want to, I want to call the worship team up now and um, they're going to lead us in a song that talks about a humble king who personifies what it means to have a good life and to be a good person. So let's prepare this time, this response to the words that I have shared with you and may God speak to you now to find out the areas in your heart that need to be cleaned out and, and given to, to the one who can clean it out for you. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for how you love us so much that even though we are dirty in the inside, we are treacherous and hypocritical often, that you would love and care for us from now into eternity. So we are so grateful for that, and we humbly ask for your forgiveness now as we come to the altar with our hearts minds and souls. So we thank you, Jesus. Amen.